1: Luke Harding was in Kiev when Vladimir Putin launched a series of attacks on February the 24th, 2022. More than a year now since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the first book-length report from the front lines has been released. It's called Invasion, subtitled Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. And its author, uh, the author also of Shadow State, is Luke Harding, who joins me from Kiev. Luke, good morning. Good morning, Pat. I think the last time we talked was about uh, Shadow State, and uh, it was a prescient book in terms of analysing the mind of Vladimir Putin and the kind of Russia that he was creating.
0: Well, I mean, I mean that's right. I mean, I, I've been going to Ukraine for a long time, about 15 years. And um, in sort of the autumn of 2021, when we all saw this massive buildup of Tanks, uh, armored columns on Ukraine's borders. Um, knowing Putin pretty well, having having written about him, having lived in Moscow, I, I feared the worst and and hurried back to Ukraine. And as you say, it was here on February the twenty fourth when when the full scale invasion began. I'm here at the moment, speaking to you from Kiev now th- th- this morning. Um, and I have to say, it's a very different city. I mean, back back then, the expectation was that Kiev would fall. And now, of course, we're all waiting for a Ukrainian counteroffensive and and waiting to see how much territory Ukraine can win back.
1: Now, that evening when you went to dinner um, with one of the Ukrainian literary luminaries, uh, he was optimistic that nothing would happen. You were pessimistic. But even then, it was hard to imagine that such a cosmopolitan city that was so vibrant and full of life and so beautiful and decorous uh, could be the subject of such terrible attacks. Well, well, that's
0: right. I, I mean, February 23rd last year, I had dinner with Andrei Kirkoff, um, who who's a, a brilliant novelist and, and just a sort of great guy and human being. I mean, he, he he's written a series of books, including Death and the Penguin, a, a more recent novel called Grey Bees, a, a Diary of the Invasion as well, which, uh, which has come out. Uh, and he, I mean, you know, we were talking about his plan, about how he might evacuate with his wife. They'd filled the car with petrol, but it seemed it seemed unreal. I mean, we, we were eating borscht that he'd made, drinking honey vodka, um, and Kiev was was normal. And and pat pat the thing to stress it was true then. It's still true now. Is that this is not some kind of gloomy Soviet backwater? This is a modern European vibrant city where you can see hipsters on e scooters uh, whizzing around a bit like in Dublin, where where there is good coffee, great food. Um, you know, universities, people in the parks. Uh, This is a country that wants to be a part of Europe, wants to be part of the European Union, wants to integrate with the West. And what Russia has been trying to do is to, to stop all that and and to really to wipe out ukraine as a, as a nation and and as a people
1: now you know putin's grand plan uh, you suggest in your book that uh, he was totally misguided he doesn't use the internet uh, for fear of uh, i don't know what he is surrounded by uh, people who are supposed to give him intelligence uh, many of them are toadies who will not uh, give him news he does not want to hear but uh, the war had unthinkable consequences Sweden and Finland abandon neutrality. Uh, Germany abandons pacifism. This is now I'm quoting from your book. Hungary and Poland embrace refugees. UK abandons its attitude to its European colleagues after Brexit. Who would have thought? Certainly not Vladimir Putin.
0: Yeah, I, I mean there are so there are so many ironies. It's irony, pardon irony. I mean the first one is that Putin considers himself to be a, a sort of brilliant spy. I mean obviously he was he was in the KGB. Uh, he surrounded himself with with people from from Russia's intelligence services, with spies basically. And what his own spy agency told him was that Ukrainians would welcome their their so called liberation by Russian troops, and would would greet arriving Russian soldiers with flowers. Now, of, of course, they didn't. They, they, they were greeted with 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 mortars and with missiles and with really implacable antagonism and, and hatred from almost anybody. I mean, that was mistake number one. Mistake number two was his assumption that the West, including Ireland, the UK, European Union, was in some kind of terminal death spiral um, and would not be greatly delighted by, by his... And of course, what we've seen is we've seen a rejuvenation of the West. We've seen uh, a, a, an incredible kind of coalition which has come together to support Volodymyr Zelensky and his government with with, with arms, with weapons, with tanks, but also with kind of um, financial assistance and, and moral support uh, from, from ordinary people, from, from Irish people, from British people and so on. And basically… Putin got it badly wrong, and, and we just have to see how far this blowback goes and whether actually ultimately it pushes him from power.
1: Now, you, you profile the two leaders. Um, in chapter three, you profile uh, Vladimir Zelensky and. Um, how skilled he is. I mean, come at the man, come at the hour, and how he tailored each and every one of his speeches to the various parliaments so they would resonate with uh, some of the experiences that those people had. You know, the Churchillian uh, echoes in the British Parliament, nine uh, eleven resonances in the American Parliament, uh, the Finns fighting uh, the Soviet troops in Finland. Um, he is a clever man.
0: He, he's he's a clever man, and, and and you're right. I mean, I mean, come at the moment, come at the man. I mean, the 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 interesting thing is that I was in Kiev in the build up to the invasion, and and very much got the impression seeing Zelensky at press conferences asking him the odd question, that that he behind the curve. I mean, he was pretty reluctant during that period to acknowledge that Russia was about to invade. Uh, he didn't want to give in to to, to fear mongering, but but when the invasion did did happen. Um, he, he he did a, a couple of amazing things. I mean, the first one was that he stayed in Kiev. I, I was in Kiev back then, uh, February 2022, and and it did feel as if the Russians were coming and were going to seize the city and probably kill Zelensky. Um, he was given an opportunity to leave. He didn't. He didn't leave, and instead, he he became, as I write in my book, he became Churchill with an iPhone. He he did these astonishing a- a- addresses to to the world and to to his people saying that, that he was there, that, that Ukraine would fight on, that it was strong, that it would not yield. Um, and you just have to watch him w- 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 when he speaks. And, you know, there are, there are moments, Pat, where I can feel that the, the, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I, I mean, there, there was one recently when, um, not, not his trip uh, on Monday to London, but the previous one when he was addressing the British Parliament, uh, and he said he was going off to, to see King Charles, King Charles, who had trained as a pilot. And then he sort of stopped and he said, um in, in, in Ukraine, every pilot is a king because they are so rare. They are so precious. And you could just feel the whoop from the audience um, of support. And that's been very, very important for Ukraine.
1: Now, uh, you have been in Kiev over the last days and uh, yesterday we were talking to an eminent associate professor from Lviv uh, who was visiting Dublin and uh, she told us that there were lessons to be learned from the attack, the multiple rocket attack on Kiev the other night, um, that the hypersonic uh, missiles of the Russians were actually stoppable, which the Russians claimed they were not.
0: Well, well, th- that was the, that was the story I wrote for the Guardian yesterday. I mean, I was in Kiev when the bombardment started, and and it's it's strange. It's strange being in a in a European city in the middle of of the biggest war since 1945. Because you get you go to bed as usual, uh, and then uh, about two thirty am, two thirty am, there was this kind of enormous wailing noise. It's the air raid sirens going off. You can't miss them, and you kind of rouse yourself, wondering what, what's going to happen next, and. I went to the balcony and then suddenly there were these kind of massive growling rumbles, flashes in the sky, uh, booms. Um, and, you know, it's not immediately clear whether that's Ukrainian air defense working, shooting down Russian missiles or it's sort of explosions of Russian missiles landing. But this went on for about sort of half an hour, 45 minutes. And of course, you can't sleep after that. You'll just fired up with adrenaline. And, and it seems that, that actually the Ukrainians shot everything down. They shot down 18 missiles, including six of these hypersonic kinjals. And I think, I think the kind of the, the, the big point is that, that this military assistance, whether it's air defense systems, whether it's Western battle tanks, uh, you know, whether it's other stuff, is making a difference and enabling Ukraine to hold, hold back the Russians and, you know, let's hope to move forward this summer.
1: Now, in your book, um, there is some horrifying stuff. Uh, you have a chapter on Butcher a, a, a genteel suburb, I suppose, of Kiev. You've got a chapter on Mariupol, which is incredibly moving, uh, the conditions that uh, civilians and uh, troops alike had to undergo. You have a chapter about uh, what happened in Chernobyl when they uh, arrive, indifferent to the fact, the Russian troops, that they could be contaminating themselves uh, unwittingly. Uh, and then the uh, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant... Um, <laughs> It's quite clear that there are multiple, multiple war crimes committed by troops on behalf of Russia.
0: Yeah. And actually, it was interesting sort of Pat writing the book. I mean, I mean, I sort of felt I had to tell these stories, these human stories. And to some degree, it was cathartic. I mean, especially after Butcher and Mariupol last year. Um, April. Uh, I mean, I went, I went to Butcher just after the Russians sort of left, left town, head, heading north. And I, I've done a lot of war. I've, I've covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Georgia. But it was really, I, I think, probably the, the, the worst thing I've seen. I mean, you'll remember the images of bodies on the streets. I, I talked to one woman who's 24-year-old nephew was taken away by, by Russian troops uh, and she, she, she peered over a, a fence on her street and saw that they'd broken his arm. The soldiers were interrogating him and then he disappeared for three weeks. They thought he was still alive um, and she, she took me to an abandoned house just around the corner about 300 meters away from where she lived um, and I went down into um, a cellar where he'd been kept and there was a bloody mattress a children's toy, a sort of smell of death. And they had, the soldiers had kept him there for a few days, locked up, and then they'd come down one night and they'd made him kneel and they'd shot him in the back of the head. Uh, and she, the woman I was talking to had to bury bury his his body, quite a small guy in her garden. And, and the, the, the reason I tell you this is because there were 1,600 civilians executed in the Kyiv region in similar fashion. I, you know, in the course of my reporting for this book and for my newspaper, I, I, I visited a Zoom in the northeast of the country and watched forensic scientists in boiler suits excavating mass graves of civilians who died in Russian shelling and Ukrainian soldiers who'd been captured, tortured and executed. I mean, th- th- these are monstrous crimes. I, I think when the Ukrainians talk of genocide that they're, that they're right because the the project Putin makes no secret about this is to kind of exterminate Ukraine and Ukraineness and to turn it into a province of Russia. Um, And when this war is over, I I think there will be prosecutions um, and investigations Mm. for years and probably decades.
1: But will there be any reckoning for Vladimir Putin? Because, I mean, he is the author of all of this. Um, You uh, quote from an essay that he wrote, which uh, he clearly thought was. Uh, genius about uh, how the russian empire would be regained there could be no russian empire without ukraine being part of it um and you mentioned that someone who looked at it wouldn't even give it a two-two in grading it it was so amateurish and naive
0: yeah i mean this is the problem with with uh dictators especially when they reach the end uh of, of of their time um and but putin putin we know putin's had a very bad pandemic he's he, he was extremely isolated already he saw scarcely anybody in the sort of defining image from the late putin era is a, of, a, of a small man at one end of a very very long table and yeah he wrote he wrote this essay saying that that, that ukraine was not a thing it was a artificial creation by, by lenin of all people back in the 1920s and this was a sort of predicate for for war but the, the, the problem is it turns out the ukrainians think that ukraine is a thing they, they want to have their own nation they want to speak their own language they want to choose their own democratic path they want to be sovereign um and i i, I just think that that look I'm, I'm a journalist i'm a writer i'm not an activist but i sort of think that that ukraine deserves our support and empathy and it deserves our continuing support um as the war grinds on
1: um you mentioned that uh Putin is at one with the, the late Alexander Solzhenitsyn in terms of the attitude to Ukraine, with one caveat that Solzhenitsyn had said, you know, if Ukraine wanted to secede from the Soviet Union, well, nobody would want to keep them in the union by force. Whereas that is not Putin's view. Clearly,
0: I mean that, that that's not Putin's view. I mean he he's been using force to 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 overrule uh, Ukraine, and what what the Ukrainians will tell you is that they they, they think. Uh, I think probably correctly that if, if, actually, if 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 it succeeds in Ukraine, that that the Russian, you know, the Russian state will keep going. They'll they'll do Moldova next, or uh, you know, maybe the Baltic states. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of venomous stuff on on state TV about Poland. They don't like the Brits or or, or, or Dublin for, for that matter. And I think, I mean, we talked earlier about Zelensky. What he's been very successful at doing is saying, look, this isn't actually just, you know, our, 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 our struggle, it's your struggle as well. It's a sort of common struggle to, um, to support democracy, to support basic human values in the face of Russian tyranny and totalitarianism. Um, it's an effective argument because I think it's true.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Macron at one point didn't want to characterize what was going on in Ukraine as war crimes because therefore if there were war crimes going on, then they would have a moral imperative to act. Um, he's changed his tune somewhat.
0: Well, he has. I mean, Macron, I think, is probably, in my view, he's probably Europe's most brilliant politician, but he does have this habit of of freelancing, going off to see Vladimir Putin before the war, believing that he, Macron, could persuade Putin to back down, recently dropping in to see the, 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 the Chinese. Um, and it, it is quite curious, but, but I, I think the major point is, is one we touched on, that there has been extraordinary kind of unity between... Countries that 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 have had problems, issues, whether it's Brexit, the the protocol, or whatever. But but actually, on Ukraine, pretty much everybody agrees. And and the other thing, of course, we've seen is we've seen a, a we've seen a rejuvenated America. We've seen that the Biden administration bounce back, uh, equip the Ukrainians with all sorts of sophisticated weapons, and, and 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 a Western world, a democratic world that that has been. That is now really, I would say, more more united, more more cohesive than at any time for the past sort of two or three decades.
1: Well, uh, so much more to talk about, uh, Luke. But you will be in Dublin, I believe, on Saturday as part of the uh, International Literature Festival. Uh, you'll be speaking at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon in uh, Marion Square in sing. Uh, my thanks to you very much for joining us. The book is. Absolutely brilliant. If journalism is the first draft of history, uh, this is a comprehensive first draft, I have to say. Invasion, it's called Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. And to its author, Luke Harding. Luke, thank you very much for joining us on the programme.
0: The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.